Open your Bibles to Judges 5. I'm going to pray, and what we're going to do today is just wrap up chapter 5, the Song of Deborah, and then get into the story of Gideon. I know you've been anticipating uh, Gideon, so we'll we'll get started on Gideon today. Uh, Gideon's story uh, takes more than one chapter, so we will not finish Gideon today, but we'll get started on, on that. Father, thank you for the beauty of this day, and it really is a spectacular day, and we're very thankful. We thank you for the lunch that we've enjoyed. Pray that you'll use it to strengthen us. We thank you for sweet fellowship. It is so good to see uh, brothers and sisters in Christ here in our Wednesday gathering, and just pray your blessing upon each person in this room and their families. Pray that you'll bless us in our continuing study of judges, that you will speak to our hearts. And Father, we um, anticipate a great day Sunday and just pray your blessing upon us as we have our first worship at the hilltop in anticipation of the many, many, many worship opportunities that will follow in the years to come. So bless us now as we begin our study today, and thank you again for all who've come. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, Um, no time to go back and read chapter 5. Um, trust that you uh, have already done that if you've been here the last two or three weeks. But chapter 5 is fierce. It is uh, bloodthirsty. And it is filled with praise of God. What what a mixture. Um, Unlike chapter 4, which is the first telling of the same events that are repeated in chapter 5, chapter 4 only mentions God three times. Two of those times are Deborah speaking. But chapter 5 is filled with God and praise of God, but also mixed with violence. So how do we reconcile all of that in light of the words of Jesus in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, where in verse 27 and 28, where Jesus said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Those words of our Lord. So how do we put all of that together or or do we try? Now, remember this, God is protective of his people. God is protective of his people. God is providing for his people, and also remember that the Canaanites are vile and wicked people. Whenever you read in the Old Testament about some of what happens to the Canaanites, temper your compassion by remembering there have probably not been a viler, more wicked people in the history of the world than the Canaanites. They, they were awful. If you, you would need to do nothing more than do a little archaeological journey of the Middle East to find how wicked the Canaanites really were. You find their altars upon which they sacrificed children and the idols that they worship. And then, of course, historical documents that have passed down through the ages that the Canaanites were very wicked. But let's think about 
the fierceness of this fifth chapter, the Song of Deborah, and, and think about the words of Christ. And so, what do we do with all? What do we do with all that? Or we just try not to think about it? Well, I've got three things that I want to say. Number one, God's triumph over evil, and the fact that one day all people will stand before Him and be held, and be held to account for their actions are aspects of the gospel which we should welcome and rejoice over. We will be there, but Jesus will be our advocate. And aren't we grateful? Now, in Revelation, I'll read to you from Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. You're welcome to find it, but if you want to just listen. Revelation 11, beginning with verse 15 It says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Now there, if there's ever been a triumphant statement, that's it. And and it is clear as it can be. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So there we are again, a triumphant statement. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Uh, That lets us know that you don't have to lose any sleep trying to reconcile Jesus' words about loving your enemies over against what God has done and is doing and will do. It all fits together. Now, clearly, we praise Jesus for his victory over sin and over Satan and over darkness. And nowhere is it clearer than in Revelation chapter 11, the triumphal statement. Now, here's the second thing. Coming judgment, the judgment that is coming, frees us from needing to see justice done in this life, in our lifetime. Nothing is more frustrating, admittedly, for us than the sense that sometimes it seems like evildoers get away with their evil. It's very frustrating. Uh, It is to me, and I doubt, I know some of you pretty well, so I know it's frustrating to you also. There will be vindication of those who do right and punishment for wrongdoers beyond this life. For instance, I can think back about the, the, the beautiful 22-year-old young lady that was in our church in Fort Worth who was kidnapped, and we did not know what had happened to her, and it was, it was two years. I had actually moved and come here before we ever found out what happened although we were pretty sure. But her body, what was left of it, was found. And whatever they can do in forensics is beyond me, but it would appear 
that she was abducted, raped, and killed. And to this day, whoever did it has not been found. So the frustration of that is, from our side, he needs to be brought to justice. Maybe he already has. Maybe he has subsequently died, because that's been over 30 years ago. And if he has, then believe me, he has begun to pay for what he did and will continue to pay for all of eternity. And if he's still living, then understand, as frustrating as it is to us, because the people who knew that girl, we'd, we'd like to all stand in front of him and just every, one by one pulverize him. But that's just human fleshly thinking. That's what we want to do. But, but God is going to bring judgment on all those who do evil. We are free from feeling like we have to do it ourselves. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now don't look at that verse and say, Oh, well, that's addressing the judicial system. And therefore, if somebody commits a crime, we let them go. (laughs) No, that is not what it's saying. We don't do that. But what it is saying is on a personal level, you as a believer... Do not seek to take vengeance on evildoers. God will take care of that. We're free to bless those who curse us. Well, there's an easy thing to do. We're free to bless those who curse us. And how do we know God will repay? Well, the scripture tells us, but here's the third thing I want to say before we move on to Gideon. Because we have seen sin judged already on the cross. We have. We have seen sin judged already on the cross. The cross is where we are justified, and it is also the proof that God does judge and punish sin. The death of his one and only son, Jesus. Let me read from Romans 3. I know if Betty Anderson were here today, she would say, why didn't you have those verses printed? And I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. But Romans 3, 25 and 26. um, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's how we come into a relationship, by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The resurrection tells us that there will be a judgment for all whose sin has not yet been punished. It is proof that God will judge and punish sin. And I refer to one more verse, Acts 17.31. Acts 17.31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Okay, I got it. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Okay, so we're thinking, who is that man? Oh, yeah, it's Jesus because he's raised him from the dead. 
So understand, we want to see justice done, and it will be. Not by you, not by me, but it will be. And we yearn for that while still praying for our enemies. The uniqueness of the faith that we profess. None none like it. None like it in all the world. Christianity is unique. The uniqueness of Christianity is found in the death of Jesus on the cross in his resurrection and in the word that begins with a G called G-R-A-C-E. That is the uniqueness of our faith. You find it nowhere else. No other religion and even some who call themselves Christians don't embrace the grace that we find in the scripture. Jesus on the cross said, and we can say with him, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Okay, now, are you still with me? That's one of those things, okay, I'm going to go home and sleep on that one. So let's go to Gideon. I I love reading and studying and thinking about Gideon. So we're at the sixth chapter now of Judges. Aren't we making incredible progress? Um, 21 chapters and we're almost a third of the way finished, almost. All right, I want to read verses 1 through 10, the Israel of Gideon. This will not surprise you. We have been at this long enough now in Judges where the first part of chapter 6, you're going to say, here we go again. Okay, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. If your eyes go back up to chapter six, or chapter five, five, verse thirty-one, the last sentence: the land had peace for forty years. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Verse one, chapter six. Remember the cycle. Here we go again. He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So. Do you understand what that's saying? God is orchestrating this punishment by giving them into the hands of the Midianites because, verse 2, the power of Midian was so oppressive, as a result, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. How sad they're having to hide in their own land. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. Gaza's on the Mediterranean, so from the the hill country all the way across the land to, to Gaza. And did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock in their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Now, if you're looking for a declaration of purpose on the part of the Midianites, there it is. They invaded the land to ravage it. Their ultimate purpose was not to see how many Israelis they could kill. Their ultimate purpose was to absolutely ravage the land. That's what they did. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Uh, Here we go in the cycle. The cycle continues. 
Verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. The cycle continues. And the prophet said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. A recitation of history. But verse 10, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. Here's the devastating sentence. But you have not listened to me. I I don't know what it would have been like to hear this prophetic utterance from this prophet. But this last sentence would certainly cause any Israelite listening to shrink to about the size of a grasshopper. You have not listened to me. Okay, let's talk about those ten verses. So here we go again. The Midianites are the new oppressors, and they are worse than anybody Israel had faced heretofore. They're so oppressive that the Israelites hid in mountains and caves, places that where they would be hidden from the Midianites or and or secure because it was difficult to access. How would you like to live like that? So it was frustrating. They would plant their crops, but before they could harvest them, the Midianites would trample and ruin the crops. It wasn't like they were looking for a meal. They they were coming and just trampling the crops and destroying them. And they would kill their sheep. They would kill their cattle. They would kill, kill their donkeys. They were massive numbers. And Israel is going hungry. And the oppression is awful. And they cry out for help to God as they have done before. This time an unnamed prophet lectures them, which they deserved. It's a recitation of history that has been ignored. By the way, we ignore history at our own peril. Don't not do that. They rebelled against God at their own peril, and we are in peril if we rebel against God. And so the prophet says, speaking for God, you did not listen to me. And the Midianites did not really come to conquer because they would plunder the crops and go home. They were accomplishing their purpose, not to occupy the land and to move the Israelites out of their homes and occupy them themselves. Their their objective was to plunder and, and I suppose to starve them out and to economically impoverish them. You know, all your ways of raising money are being trampled. So what are you going to do? So they took their money. They took their means of, of their livelihood. They took their food. They took their animals. And Israel was reduced to destitution and hiding in caves. What a place to be. When Israel hits bottom, then they call out to God. I suppose if there's any question about the way this happened, it's why did it take them seven years to call out to God? Now, 
So there's Gideon's Israel. There's the picture. So let's look at Gideon and his visitor as we begin um, verse... Yeah, okay, I have to check time. Let's read beginning with verse 11 of chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, Abizrite, who where his son Gideon, there's our introduction to Gideon, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. I'm not a wheat farmer, but I do know you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. <laughs> so why was Gideon there? part of hiding he didn't want to be noticed when the angel of the lord appeared to gideon he said the lord is with you mighty warrior (laughs) i love that god is you know what God, god is speaking the fact as it will be it is a fact god is speaking gideon wasn't a mighty warrior yet god is saying you are going to be you are a mighty warrior, and that is exactly what he will be. We'll see as we continue on. So Gideon, I love this, Gideon, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, uh uh-oh, why has all this happened to us? Um, Wow, come on, Gideon. (laughs) Maybe that's what I would have said or you would have said. Defensive, poor us, not stopping to realize we deserve everything we're getting. Pardon me, but if the Lord is with us, as you have just said, angel, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, my my heart hurts for Gideon and his fellow countrymen. But let's clarify something. Who abandoned who? Did God really abandon Israel or did they first abandon him? Exactly what they did. So, verse 14, the Lord turned to him. Now, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to, read too much into that that may not really be intended to be there, but I do find it fascinating that the Lord turned. It's kind of like your mama did when she would turn and look at you when you had said something you shouldn't have said or your daddy or or maybe you did with your kids. The Lord turned to him and said, he didn't chastise him. We would think, well, this prophet, this this." This angel from the Lord could have could have said, how dare you talk to me like that? But he didn't. Look at this. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Astonishing. I don't think Gideon felt very strong at that moment. I mean, he is in hiding out of fear for the Midianites. And yet the Lord is saying to him, you have strength. Where is it coming from? It's coming from the Lord. I'm, here's a statement of fact. I'm giving you 
the strength to do what I am about to tell you to do. Well, guess what? He does the same thing with us. When he says to us, here's what I want you to do, he never then pats you on the back or football style on the rump and says, go get them. Rather, he says, go do this and I am with you and I'll give you everything you need to win. That's what he's saying to Gideon. Am I not sending you? So Gideon, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? It's a really good question. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. It's a statement of humility, which we appreciate. I think it's also a statement of, I can't believe you just said that to me. I don't, how, how am I supposed to do that? I understand that, and I'm not being critical of Gideon at all. I, I don't know, I might have turned and run, but here, then the Lord answers, and he's still so patient and gentle in dealing with Gideon. I, I, I love that. God's got a purpose, and he knows what's coming. The Lord answered, I will be with you. All we need, isn't it? I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replies, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Okay? Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I'll wait until you return. I love this conversation between Gideon and the Lord. And the Lord said, I'll wait. Verse 19, Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. This was a process that you know took several hours. Verse 20, the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Gideon thought he had seen the Lord face to face, and he thinks, I can't survive that experience. It's going to kill me. But God says, No, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, day of the writing of this part of Judges, it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. Verse 25, and we'll stop. Uh, that same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole behind, beside it. Wow. This would be like saying, Oh, Gideon wasn't raised in a Christian home. <laughs> yeah, he's raised in a home of a Baal worshiper. 
Okay, let's stop there. Let me do a little explanation, and then we'll pick back up there next week. Gideon was in hiding. He did not want to attract the attention of the Midianites. He's just trying to stay alive. Stay in, did somebody write a song? Staying alive, staying alive. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Yeah. Vaguely, vaguely remember that. Back in my old days. I don't know. Just trying to stay alive. Gideon realizes that he's being watched. He's not afraid when the messenger speaks. Not yet. Verse 12 makes no sense to Gideon. Look at it again. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It simply brings his frustration to the surface, which he expresses in verse 13. He faces Gideon head on. The messenger faces Gideon head on and commands him in verse 14. So Gideon turns from uh, bluster, I think, Shaken at the messenger's words, and he begins to make excuses in verse 15. But the messenger is relentless in a precious, sweet way. He is relentless. He's not moved by Gideon's anger or his excuses. So in verse 16, he backs Gideon into a corner, and Gideon asks for a sign of certainty, and the visitor waits while Gideon makes a meal, and then Gideon treats the meal like a sacrifice when the angel or the messenger consumes it with fire. Now, Gideon is beyond anger at this point and uncertainty. He he is scared. He's scared at what he's seen. He knows he has seen the Lord, and he feels like he cannot survive it. He felt foolish for what he had said, and he blurts out his fear like a condemned man, but he hears the God he fears speak in verse 23 and assure him, Let's read that verse again. Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Over and over and over and over again in Scripture, the Lord says, peace to you. That's a peace that we know in our hearts as believers. Now, God is now everything and Gideon is nothing except a profoundly grateful man. So here's where we pause. Gideon now has his peace in his heart, so he builds an altar and calls it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. And so verse 24 is his act of faith that he expresses to God. Now, when we come back next time, we're going to pick up there because if you've read this before, I know most of you have, the story of Gideon is exciting. Believe me, the best is yet to be. We've just started. What happens with Gideon is absolutely astonishing. We will see God move in a remarkable and unmistakable way when he conquers the Midians through his servant Gideon. And let's see if you've read the story. And Gideon's massive army that he was able to accumulate to march on Midian, numbering in the thousands upon thousands. No, no, that's not it. So next time, we'll pick up with verse 26 and proceed with our study of the life of Gideon. Father, I I pray that we would be your faithful servants, that we would trust you, that we would obey you, 
that we would rejoice in the peace that you give to us, that we would trust you and that we would fear not, that we would know when you speak to us from Scripture, we do not have to be afraid, but we can simply obey what you've told us to do, and you will give us the power to accomplish whatever that may be. We love you and adore you. We worship you and look forward to our next time together in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you next week.